Hey there, my name is Matt Gundrum, and you are listening to Food Under Fire, where we explore grace and resilience in the food system. So I'm going to be completely honest with you. Today's episode gets pretty heavy at some points because it confronts one of the most bizarre and harrowing realities of life, one that we tend to ignore most of the time. And it is this. Life ends. And many people are reminded of this fact when they are faced with life-threatening conditions or have near-death experiences. Now, I'm not trying to bring you down or anything. I just share this fact as a reminder, because when we truly acknowledge that our time here is limited, our life experiences and our relationships become 10 times, 20 times more important. Even better, we realize that most of life is just a bunch of silly nonsense. Why do you care about what other people think of you? Why are you so worried about politics all the time? Why are you so stressed about your career? Most of it just doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. While we're here on Earth, we must prioritize love as it appears in every aspect of our lives. Once we successfully do that, everything else is just a bonus. Before we get into today's episode, be sure to follow the podcast on the official Instagram page, which you can now find at food under fire pod. You can find it on Facebook as well under the same name. Keep in mind that I recently launched a Patreon for the podcast. Patreon is a service where for as little as $3 a month, you can get access to food under fire merch. It's optional, but if you're interested, visit patreon.com slash food under fire. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash food under fire. You can find that link in the description. And of course, if you enjoy the show, consider subscribing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You could also share with a friend or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. The podcast was recently featured in the top 100 food programs across all of Apple Podcasts, and that's all thanks to you rating the show, downloading, and listening. And for that, I can't thank you enough. Jack Rebel doesn't like to rest. The guy is always on the move. He's either running restaurants opening restaurants, cooking in restaurants, or keeping himself busy with hobby projects at home. His career in the Twin Cities restaurant scene is a legendary one. He's worked in iconic places such as Goodfellows, La Belle Vie, and the Dakota Jazz Club. He's also been in charge of iconic places too, Butcher and the Boar in Minneapolis and the Lexington in St. Paul the latter of which is an 80-year institution that he helped reopen in the 2010s. Everyone in town knows the guy. 
they all love him. They respect him too. Probably because he doesn't take shit. He's stubborn, he's independent, and he likes to be in charge. He's quick to tell his staff what they're doing wrong, but even quicker to celebrate when they get it right. But that celebration doesn't last long before he's back to being a hard ass. Of course, he means well. This fiery attitude, this non-stop movement, this dedication to service and hard work are what sculpted Jack Rebel into the man he is today. But in 2019, everything changed. He came face to face with his mortality. August of that year when he received the diagnosis. Neuroendocrine cancer. Deadly, rare, and no cure. For once, Jack had to stand still. For once, instead of looking forward, he had to look back and reflect on the life he had lived thus far. Since the diagnosis, his cancer has been relentless. Multiple rounds of chemotherapy treatment and it keeps coming back. But despite everything, Jack continues to work. He continues to push on. The chemo makes him lethargic, but when he finds the energy, he's back in the Lexington or working on home projects. I read a lot about Jack and his story, but I wanted to hear his story from his own words. Admittedly, with trepidation, I reached out to him on social media. He got back to me quickly, and within a week, I went to visit him at the Lexington in St. Paul. When I get there, I notice a souped-up Audi hatchback in the parking lot. Right as he comes out, I have to ask. Is this your car right here? Yeah. Turns out he's a car guy. He proceeds to tell me about all the upgrades he's put into it and adds that his wife's car is actually faster. She races hers. We walk into the building and I'm stunned. It was like stepping into a bygone era. Vintage chandeliers, stunning woodwork, flourishes of amber and art deco green. Jack played a major role in revitalizing the restaurant, which was shut down in the early 2010s. With the help of a few business partners, Jack got it up and running again. Over the next few years, he completely overhauled the space, retaining the essence of its former self, but with added luxe and class. And you can tell he's proud about all the work he's put in. He gave me a tour throughout the upper and lower levels, telling me all about the details and upgrades. So this is the 
the front door. This is all original. This is the original coat check room, which nobody has anymore. Holy Check out cow. the peacock wallpaper. Uh, all light work up here is all original. We didn't replace anything up there. Like the chandeliers are all original. We kept this because we thought it was cool. But we wanted something modern, so we sprayed it. It looked like this. It was the same one. Okay. We sprayed it, added windows and the door to the kitchen. So we can, and what we did was we actually built an entire staging kitchen. This was an office in storage. We built this whole, this whole thing. This is why I say we could like sit up here. This we built as an entire private dining area. Oh my god. And it's divisible by two. There's a, a portable wall. We built the rooftop, which is whatever we love. There's our rooftop patio with a full kitchen. Although we didn't operate the kitchen up here last year because we were Eventually, we finish up the tour and sit down. For a brief moment, the restaurant's general manager, Sarah, pops in to say hi. As she was leaving, they had an exchange that I found to be really sweet. You can just tell that Jack really cares about his team. All right, love you. Good luck. Love you. Feel good. You too. Water, take some with you. Keep me posted. I will. You want a water right now? No, no, I have mine. I'm good. I drank two already today and I'm going to keep going. You know you lose a liter of water when you sleep? Especially if you drink as many beers as I do. Before Probably more. <laughs> I didn't realize that's your biggest expenditure of water like unless you're exercising. You learn all this stuff when you're on cancer, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll keep you posted. Okay, love you, thank you. As I'm checking all my equipment, Jack and I just start talking casually. We begin with Tim Niver, a local restaurateur who I've had in the show twice, and we both speak of how much we admire the guy. The conversation keeps going, so I realize that I might as well hit record. We can start sound testing, by the way, so keep it about like a fist or a fist and a half away from your mouth. Test, but, test, test. But keep going with that. Yeah, so about I, Tim Niver. Yeah, about Tim So I, Yeah, and so I'd go and have a herring plate. I love the herring plate there, and I would uh, have a shot of horseradish akavit, which is the one I enjoyed, and talk to Tim and get on the bus. And I kind of just remains friends with him. And then he opened the Town Talk Diner. Oh, gosh, I don't know. When did the Town Talk open? 2004, 2002, something like that? And I was in my neighborhood. And, and I lived in Longfellow at the time. It was the first house I bought leaving St. Paul, so I was a trader. Um, but it was the only, like, full-service restaurant that had cocktails in our neighborhood. So we would go there frequently after work. And, you know, we met all – I mean, all the bigs came through there. It's a testament, I think, to Tim and, and his um, – you know his leadership and his genuine hospitality because yeah i look at the i look at the talent that came through the town talk I mean, we're talking about jesse held nick kosovich aaron johnson yeah those know, guys are Burke. great like all these guys were all bartenders working the counter there and they've all gone on to their own greatness and i think part of it's a testament to tim and you know that like i said the leadership hospitality just kind of what he brings you know you mentioned that he's unique he he brings a unique level of of hospitality that you just don't find here and i and i really appreciate it so yeah it's cool i, I got much love for him and now he's down the street at moochie and yeah i love saint dinette um and i think tim does a really good job too of uh of cultivating talent i think adam eaton is a super talented guy um and i also think kenzie edinger who's doing the food at moochie st paul's great and chris obviously now running the one on bryant i just yeah tim does a really good job he and his wife live down the street, so they come in here, um, I'd say frequently, a couple times a month, and they eat roasted chicken and share a salad and have a martini, and I just always, I always enjoy seeing them, and I always feel like, um, you know, a testament to friendship is you just pick up where you left off, and, and right. I always feel like that's how it is with Tim, and so I, yeah, I always appreciate seeing him. Yeah, he's really good at putting together teams, that's kind of what I noticed from him, and that's what you essentially just said, like he just, he, he's good at finding the best people 
and putting them together for his yeah. establishments. And I think that, you know, that it, it's, it's an innate skill too, because he doesn't just find it, but he develops it. Right. Like I think it's his leadership is really, um, to, to our scene, like you said, to what's happening here. It's really important because I don't know, I don't think that everybody has that skill, I guess, in fairness, right? Like you hope, you hope that you can, you know, instill, um, your values and the things that you believe in in our industry in the people that work with you. And it's just not always the case, but he just has an uncanny way of, like you said, not only finding the talent, but cultivating it and then, you know, and creating it. And I think that that's really important. And by him, we all benefit from it and that's great. Right. Yeah. How do you think you fare in that realm? Is that something that you've had that's to build or a, that's a really interesting question well you know cancer has been a really it's been a change for me because so many people have reached out right but if, if i were to be very candid what i would say is i think that i'm well respected by many people who work for me i don't know everybody loves me with the same reverence <laughs> as tim um but i'm hard to work for and, and in fairness i'm demanding and and i have high expectations and i'm not always easy but i think in hindsight a lot of people appreciate what they learned and got out of me from a leadership position down the road. Um, and in the end of the day, again, being candid, you know, you're not really here to be their friend every day. You're on the business mm -hmm. and you're the right. leader and, and you don't always make friends. Now I've made a lot of good ones. That's not to say that I haven't had a lot of, of, of good results, but I'm amazed at the amount of people that have reached out to me to really, um, to give me credit for their success now today or their level of discipline or, or how their, or how their life has changed because they work for me. And that, that's really rewarding. I mean, in the end of the day, that's, I think all you can hope for, um, given the opportunity that you are as a chef, which I think really is, there's a few different roles in that, you know, it's obviously you're the leader one, oftentimes you're the sole creative force. Um, but you're also a mentor and you're also a coach. And, and sometimes you're even, you know, you're even like a, a surrogate family because kitchens and cooks spend so much time together. You know, I mean, I think about some of my relationships coming up in the ranks is I spent more time working with other sous chefs and chefs than I did with my own family. Mm. And so I think you really develop a unique bond. Um, and I think there's a great value in if you, if you choose to value that. I mean, I know we deal a lot in the modern era with you know what we call work-life balance i don't really like that term too much i think we all deal with that it's not unique to our industry um i know plenty of people you know working in very high functioning jobs in the corporate world that are working 70 hours a week like i just don't think it's unique to chefs alone but i do think that um i do think that you have to pay some credence to to how people manage it and i just think we have to manage better ourselves and our and our staff um you know, in hopes of finding that balance, I guess. I don't, you know, work-life balance to me is, I think everybody deals with it. So the reality is, how do you manage your life every day? How do you stay functioning? How do you make it work? And I think you hope as a leader to instill some of that in other people where you learn to prioritize the things that are important. And and, and maybe, I'm, I'm hopeful on the other side of the pandemic that people will probably um, value their time differently. Um, and they'll look at how they prioritize things and other things will become more important than work. Um, and, you know, and, and you, we just toured the Lux. It was kind of the catalyst of me doing this. I think we took a real challenge, um, Josh and I and Kevin, when we looked at the Lux, because, you know, who was putting tablecloths on a table in, in 2017? But I felt like we were at a point where can we sit down and break bread together again? Can we actually just have a meal where we're in a place where it's full service and the idea is that you're here for a period of time to share um, that time with one another and some camaraderie and, and friendship and family. 
because I felt like that was missing from more and more of the formula in our industry as we push more towards counter service, quick serve. You know, the pandemic's been mad takeout, you know, for us included. And so maybe we're a little ahead of the curve, but I'm hopeful now that people that want to come back out are going to find a value in sitting here. I remember we got a complaint early on. It was kind of interesting to me. Some guy complained that he had a two and a half hour meal with his family. And I thought, wow, dude, if that, if you're mad that it took two and a half hours and you can't sit with your family for that long, like you got bigger problems than dinner, you know? And, and honestly, that was the antithesis of like what I was trying to make happen. Right. right I wanted people to right. come in here because, you know, when I was a kid and I'm a kid of the seventies, more or less, um, you know, you had family meal every night. You sat at the table. I mean, both my parents worked, but, you know, we were required to be at the table. And if you didn't want to eat what was there, you didn't eat anything, right? Like, I have friends say they're cooking three meals for four kids, you know? <laughs> I'm like, what are you guys doing? Uh, and so I wanted to, I really, I wanted that to come back. It was important to me. And, and, mm -hmm. I, and I think, you know, like I said, I'm hopeful that on the other side of the pandemic that what becomes more of the modern cadences that we we value that time different and we look at how we spend that time with one another differently certainly in the amount of unrest we're, we're dealing with right now you realize you got to know your neighbors people you got to sit down and, and break bread and and uh and share because i think it's important right it's it's really interesting to me that you mentioned work-life balance i i was talking to gosh now december i had a conversation with alex roberts and he mentioned that exact same phrase and how it's 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 just kind of dated and it doesn't really make sense and he was talking about how it was a buzzword of days old perhaps the 2000s or something and it just represents kind of like a fundamental misunderstanding of what life is or to some people what life is you know it's not necessary work life it's just all one thing there is no dichotomy it's just all one thing yeah and, and you know your work it, is your life your life is your work and it's just no it's interesting right. that you said, and he's, and he's such an astute fellow, you know, I mean, I feel blessed to know all these guys from a time. I, mean, I remember when Alex Roberts was waiting tables. I hope you listen to this, Alex, because it's one of my favorite stories about him. You know, he was waiting tables at Restaurant Lucci in St. Paul. And I remember he waited on me and my wife at the time, my first wife. And uh, he's like, yeah, I just came from New York and I'm waiting tables part time. I'm working on a gig. I'm going to open this fine dining place in Minneapolis. I'm like, this kid's 21 years old. Like, what's he talking about? You know, and sure enough, a year later, he opened up Alma. And, uh, and you know, one thing I've appreciated him, and you, you pointed this out, is, is he, you know, he's just, he's, he's very astute. And I think he's, he's mad smart. And he pays attention to what's going on around him. And I think, you know, you choose to be a chef, right? So don't complain about, or any profession for that matter, you talk about what it You kind of know what you're signing up for, right? Like I never had kids, and part of the reason I didn't have children is I didn't devote time for that in my life. But I don't look upon that with regret. I look on it as I made a choice to put my time and effort into my career. And for good or for bad, you know, the definition became I'm Chef Jack, you know? And my work defined me at times as much as anything else that I did. And the reward for that you know, really has come for me, you know, in my battle with cancer to have all those people like, like we talked about, reach out to me and say, you know, how you may have affected them in a positive way and how you changed the life and that you, you leave memories behind that are, that are forever, you know? And I think when you look at, it's just life, the statement Alex says that that's what you choose to do and it's your life. And it, you know, it doesn't need to define you, but it does need to be a conscious choice that you're going to do this. And then you live with that, right? Um, for good or for bad. For me, it's been for the good. Um, 
and it's never, you know, it's never perfect every day. Right. I mean, I think most days any chef will tell you if it can go wrong, it will. Um, right. And it's how, and it's, you know, it's, it's the adage. It's, it's not how you fall down. It's how you get up and you just keep getting up every day and doing it again. And, and I think, you know, anybody who's ran a kitchen, anybody who's commanded a team of, of people, anybody who's, who's ran a business knows that it's not easy. Um, and life really in the end of the day isn't easy. Right. I mean, you choose, you choose how you want to be. You're in control of your happiness, your destination. I know that that sounds cliche. Like people say, Oh, you don't get to choose. There's privileges, all these things. But the reality is we do make choices and then you live with, um, the good or bad results of the choices. Right. Ultimately. Yeah, you are correct. Ultimately. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, and I was a kid from, I grew up in right down the street. Like I told you four blocks away, it was a very marginalized neighborhood when I was a kid. Um, I went to the original JJ Hill. I was the only white kid in the entire school. Wow. Um, the neighborhood was predominantly, um, African-American. It was the old Rondo neighborhood. Um, my right, parents yeah. bought the house in 69. So the freeway had just went through, um, a few years before that. Um, and so it was a very, very, um, different neighborhood than it is today. It's very gentrified. And we never came to Lexington. It was way too fancy. We didn't have money. It was, you know, it was the restaurant down the street where the fancy people went. That's what we thought. And, you know, we were the, we were the brat kids in the neighborhood that like skidded our bike on the red carpet. They used to have a red carpet that went on the sidewalk. We leave skid marks on it. Um, and so to come full circle now and be here, you know, 35, 40 years later of my career um, and run this was really, I mean, it's kind of that legacy piece. It's not something that if, you know, if you had asked me what my ambition was when I was 25 years old, I mean, clearly my goal was I wanted to own and operate my own restaurant by the time I was 40. I didn't, I wasn't like overly, um, I wasn't overly optimistic that it was going to happen tomorrow. I knew that it was going to take time and I knew that I had to create it, but I knew that I wanted to do it. And if you'd have told me that, you know, one of those would be the Lexington in the end of my career, I would have thought you're out of your mind. I would never do it. As a matter of fact, it's my first restaurant only in St. Paul that I've ever mm. owned or operated. So, um, yeah, it's been really, you know, it's, it's challenging, but it's rewarding. Um, and the work as a chef is rewarding. Um, and, and it's not easy, but it, but if you, if you choose that path and you choose to do it, there's a lot of good that can come from it. And I think for me, the greatest takeaway, like I said to you, is just the thought that you can provide memories and moments for people that are everlasting, right? And that's important. Right, yeah, some of my most powerful memories are food memories, wherever, in a restaurant, and other side of the world at like a street market, those are some of my most powerful memories. And it just adds to the richness of life, a good meal at a good place with good people. It just makes life worth living. It's pretty simple. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I'm, and I'm a huge, huge music fan. So I worked in Dakota for six years and I was a member there. I was a train member before I actually took the job. I was a member while I was at La Belle Um, and I remember racing home from Stillwater to catch second sets over on Bandana Square and see live jazz. Cause I was a huge jazz fan. And you know, of the two things in my life that I think are pertinent is music and food are a language and a gift that we can all share. To your point, I, you know, I've, I've sat on mud floors in Peru and eaten guinea hen stew with, with the locals in the jungle. And I've been to three mission star restaurants in Europe and the U.S. And they're both, to your point, relevant. They both have a meaning. They both have a place. And I think when you talk about food more than anything, I think about like the olfactory senses of the body, right? You have you know, 6,000 some odd smell memories. It's insane, right? But almost all of them pertain to the smell of food, whether you like it or not, right? Like I remember the first time I smelled mutton as a kid, I thought it was the worst thing ever, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you remember these things. So to your point of bringing back the memories, you know what it was like when 
you know, when your mom was baking cookies, you know what that smelled like. And you never forget that. And then today, you know, as you as you become an adult and you have your kids or you don't or you get your partner and you bake cookies, that memory immediately comes back to you like that. Right. Like it's that moment where the smell, the idea, the food, it all is a language that never goes away. And I think it's really important. It was at this point that I decided to shift the direction of our conversation. Jack's cancer diagnosis. I noticed that he had referenced it several times already, so with as much sensitivity as I could, I asked him about it. You know, these are this is you know pretty intimate. I think it's. I don't know that I, I don't know that I can give you or anyone a specific reason why I um, approach it the way that I do. Maybe it's just been kind of my mantra in life, but I I just look at it as another challenge. In the moment you sit down with your oncologist and they tell you that you have an incurable cancer and you're not going to make it. Like, sorry, I'm getting choked up. It's, you know, you get a choice, right? You get a choice that you're going to make the most of those moments right away, or you're going to be dire and let it consume you. And I think, you know, the resiliency that I've been given in my life, you know, from my childhood, which was challenging to, to many things, to being a chef, like we talked about and all the challenges that go with it. Um, um, how do you, how do you manage resilience and how do you manage um, to be positive? And I guess I looked at it as those were the two choices. I can become dark and depressed or I can decide that I'm going to give the most I can in this moment to myself and my family and the people who love me to let them know that I love them. And that whatever the result is of where we go, to be remembered for the things that are important and the things that are good. And that's the greatest perspective is it's brought me a tremendous amount of joy to look back on a life that I feel was well spent. You know, it wasn't perfect. It was hard work like we talked about. It was many of these things, but so much of it is so good. And and so much of it's rewarding for um, the reasons we've talked about, the idea that you can affect somebody's life in a positive way where when I'm not here tomorrow, that spirit, that knowledge, that moment, that gift lives on in someone else. And I think, you know, I need I need to personally keep that as my perspective because that's what keeps me motivated every day. Even, you know, meeting you on a whim, you you know, I, I saw this and 24 hours later we're doing this, um, you know, without any script or anything. It's very, you know, it's very... Um, which I, which I appreciate, by the way, I really do. No, because I think it's, I think it's important that it's candid. And I just look at the same journey for me as I don't know what tomorrow brings, but for today, let's make it the best we can and let's do what we can um, to make it better, not only for myself but for everybody else. I mean, my wife's, my wife's journey is every bit as challenging as mine, and I don't claim to know every day what she's feeling and how hard it is. But I know that if I have a positive attitude and that if I can help in any way to make this journey more tolerable for us, that's my goal. Right. And, and that's true for everything. And I've been really blessed with the Lexington that I've had a great crew here. Um, I haven't really worked much in a year because I've had, you know, three different treatments that have been very aggressive um, and none of them so far have really worked. I mean, they've kept me alive, but I've been alive living on chemo, which, you know, some people might say that's not much of a life. But on the other hand, what's the alternative? You know, what I mean, so you so you look at it and say it's back to work-life balances. How do you manage it? And the fact that these guys have been managing it and taking care of me um, and that I have insurance and that, you know, I, I can I can manage the cost still, um, I feel grateful. And it's hard, I think, for people sometimes with dire prognosis to think that 
they should be grateful, but we have to understand that every moment, every day is to be cherished, you know? And again, that sounds so cliche, but I think until you're on that precipice, until you're looking at the gorge in front of you to make that leap of faith, I don't know that any of us think about it, right? Like I just came to work every day, 12 hours a day, and I didn't think that tomorrow might be that day, but that's the reality for all of us. So I hope even going back to like, you know, sharing food and memories or music or any of the things that are common language for us in humanity is that it's important that we relish those moments, you know, and, and you may not get a lot of them, but it's not important how many you get. It's the quality of what you get. Right. And I think that that's, um, something we can all try to do better. And something that I've really tried to do on this cancer journey was let the people know who've touched me in positive ways and helped me be the man that I am today, that I love them and that I'm grateful for them. You know? Right. And they've responded to that. We literally see proof of the love that people have for you, especially through Jason DeRush's GoFundMe. I oh, mean, Jason's been, I mean. The, the, the level at which that received support so quickly, it's just incredible man i mean people out there really love you and care about you and i know it's it's sad to have something like this help you understand that fully and like completely but i mean there it is right there it's incredible but it's also you know to the point of what we're talking about it's also what's allowed me um grace in this period you know and it's allowed me to feel blessed and and those things are really what help carry you through these dark moments you know and and you know it, it there, there's no underestimating the power of the support I've gotten. And, I, and I'm thankful for Jason. I mean, I knew Jason. We'd hung out a few times. I think when he first came to town, he judged some cooking contest. I was like, he remembers, not me. But, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I would say we were, you know, we were associates or friends in a periphery, right? We weren't necessarily good friends. But he literally now texts me twice a week or three times a week. He always checks in on me. I mean, he's been really a blessing, like just a dear friend. And it's been really, I mean, outside of my family, nobody talks to me more. And it, wow. I feel really grateful for that. And it's funny because we get together and it, you'd think, you know, I, I think a lot of people might interpret as well, you know, there may be an agenda or sure, because it's Jason Russia, but really we get together and talk about the most obscure things. And very rarely is it ever, you know, about restaurants or about other chefs. It's more about life and it's more about moments and it's more about, you know, things we've experienced and, and family. And it, it's been really, really a blessing for me. I mean, I'm thankful to him. He's done a lot for me. Yeah. You and, you and him, uh, posting your black walnut bakery dates and stuff oh and we're such an odd couple too and you know what i really appreciate and i think what's been really fascinating for me um to learn from him is his level of objectiveness like he's just he's he's so good at riding the line of of um observation and what i mean by that is he he looks at both sides objectively and then formulates an opinion and it's never an opinion that's subjective he doesn't choose one or the other he just puts it all out there for you to decide. And I think it's a testament to his level of journalism, one, but it's also that he's just, he's a very conscious human being that way. Like he understands that hey, there's not a perfect world. There's not, a, a, there's, you know, not, I always say to guys when we cook is that there's no straight lines in nature. You know, nothing right. grows, nothing grows linear. And it's hard because I'm a chef and I think a lot of us are, I look at, you know, very talented chefs and a, a lot of us are very linear thinkers. You know, there's a process, there's a way things get done and that's how we do it. And the reality is that that's just not how nature operates, right? Naturally, things are going to be twisted and turned and not work out quite the way we decide. And I just think he's really good at walking that line and always observing the other side of, of the argument or the equation so that everything gets represented in an equal form. 
And uh, I really, I appreciate that because I think it's a, it's a gift. I don't think everybody can do that. You know, we find ourselves in such a polarized moment and populism is, is reigning so supreme that, you know, it's a win at all costs and it's my opinion or no opinion and he's just not in that camp. And I'm, I really appreciate that. Um, right. You know, because I think for me, I look at, it, it's kind of interesting. I was like, I want to, I want people to do better. Like my goal in the kitchen is we're only, we're only as good as the weakest link. So I don't care if you're the best cook in the whole kitchen and you've made fabulous food all night and everything you cooked was perfect. If the poor guy in the dessert stations in the weeds and can't get desserts out, it doesn't really matter how good your cooking is, right? And so I try to really push that team effort um, on people to understand that you know, you're not singularly great. The greatness comes from all of us collectively. And if we can't pick up the guy at the bottom and make him better, then it really doesn't matter how good we are. And it's really something that I've tried to be conscious of probably in the last decade. It really, it was, it was, um, it was really apparent at Butcher and the Boar when I worked there because we just had such a, a wide array of talent. Um, because it was really, that was kind of the beginning of hiring becoming really challenging a decade ago, you know, is that there just wasn't the talent level. And, and part of it is, it's not that we don't have the talent level in the town, we just have a lot more restaurants for people to work at. So the talent is just spread more thin. Um, and so we really had to make a conscious effort working on the line every night that everybody was on page and everybody was going to be successful. And I, I think that that's important and it's something that's been important to me. So in some respects, you know, always championing the underdog is kind of where I'm at, you know, and I, so back to Jason, it's kind of, that's what I appreciate about him is he, he always props up the other side and, and gives them relevance. And I think that that's really important. Right. I, I like this idea that uh, it just sounds like something that I would kind of look into and understand just inherently. But this idea that there are no straight lines in nature, but in the context of being in the kitchen, it, it sometimes creates a more linear mindset. Is that a struggle you think often for chefs where they have to perhaps learn to go with the flow of service and kind of be less rigid? Is that... Yeah, I think it's I think it's really fair. And I think it's actually part of what we talked about earlier in work life balance. It's like, you know, how much control can you have over everything? And you just you don't have control really over anything. You don't have control over your cancer diagnosis to that point, you know. And so I think the trick is to take it all with a grain of salt and do the best you can every day. And, you know, the other mantra that I've had that anybody who worked for me knows is my rule is you just don't have two bad days in a row. I have bad days, right? You have bad days. The trick is Let's learn from that moment, move forward, and tomorrow, let's reset and come back and do a better job. And, and I think, you know, to try to encourage yourself and encourage others um, to go with the flow, like you said, is really, really important. And I think it's hard to do. I don't know, I don't know what gives people resilience. I don't know what gives people grit. You know, they're talking about brain science now where, they, you know, where they're saying is, is resilience in a DNA? Is it a function of some people's brains and not the other? I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think encouraging people and creating an environment where everybody can be successful helps in that in that mindset, you know, and to know that it, you know, not everything is perfect. I like the movement where we've gone in food in the last probably, you know, I'll probably started 15 years ago, maybe a decade ago, but you know, things are less constructed now, they're less plated, they're less 
Um, they're less perfect. And it's funny because I find myself from the old school, you know, because I started cooking in the 80s where, you know, things were, you know, three pieces of asparagus, you know, <laughs> one at 10 o'clock, one at two o'clock, and the fish right. goes in the center. And those kind of rules and boundaries have gone out the window. And I'm, I'm refreshed by that because I think it's less than about the process and more about the content. And I think, you know, when we talk about food is, is it delicious is all I care about. And, and I'm not anti-Instagram by any means. Um, but looking good is just one aspect of what we do, right? I mean, people eat with their eyes first. That's a truism. Um, but it has to taste delicious, right? Like, I mean, ultimately, we're eating for, for a reason. You know, I mean, I hate to think that we eat on sustenance alone. Some people do. Um, but you know, I want it to taste delicious. That's all that I care. And, and that it's cooked with care. I mean, my biggest thing is I just want to go somewhere where I know that the cooking is done with, with care. It's done with intent and purpose. I mean, I remember, I remember undressing a guy at brunch one time, he was in the weeds and I was super frustrated with him. And I was just like, can you just put some conviction into what you're doing? Cause in the end of the day, I think we glorify food service to a degree. There's that celebrity chef or wherever we want to go. That's a different topic. Um, but you know, we glorify it. And the reality is it's, it's a really simple process. I mean, in, in a lot of respects, what we do is manufacturing, right? We buy food, we prepare it and we sell it. And that's in the simplest form, right? Like you can elaborate on that in many degrees. And I don't mean to, to, to downgrade what we do, but in its simplest form, it's a manufacturing job. So when I say to a guy, put some conviction in, I mean, if you want to be framing a house, or painting walls, great, you know, it's all the same thing. But if you don't love food, if you don't love touching food, if you don't love the idea of creating for something, creating something that somebody else is gonna enjoy, you know, go work on an assembly line. I mean, I don't care what you do, because it's all manufacturing, right? But I think Julia Childs said it best, is that, you know, food is the, food and cooking is like the most intimate proposition because you're gonna make something with your hands that somebody else is gonna put in their mouth. And I think, you know, when we talk about food, it's important that, yeah, that, that to me, that, that that's, a, that's a guiding province, right? Like, know that whatever you touch is somebody else going to eat. So keep your kitchen clean, keep your hands clean, keep your counter clean. Like, there's just things to me that are very, very fundamental in what we do. And if you don't have conviction for that, you know, like I said, go make cars. I don't care. Right. <laughs> I mean... And, and, and that's no love loss. It, it's, not, it's not to me to say manufacturing is a bad thing. If you want to manufacture food and do your thing, amen. But if it's not where your passion is, then put, put it where your passion is. Because I think, I think, oh man, I'm getting off on such a tangent. My brain no, go ahead. Hard. It's interesting because I look at, I look at cooking personally as a craft. I think anybody can learn to do it. Um, and in terms of craft, some craftsmen are more talented than others. That's just the reality, right? And you can be very workmanlike and just make simple food and do that thing. And that's a fine craft. To me, the artisanship comes in because it's always the argument is a craft. The artisanship only comes in, in my mind, when you're a craftsman within the trade, whatever trade it is that you're in, you create an implement or a technique or a process or a method that transcends the way all the rest of us in the craft perform. To me, those are the artists, and those guys are really few and far between, right? Like you think, you know, in the last century, maybe a half a dozen people have really reinvented the way that we approach cooking. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the most the most current way is the influx of science into cooking with, you know, with what we called at the time molecular gastronomy. You know, I just call it a very scientific approach. It's changed the way I've cooked. You know, now I now I can use things like 
a combi oven and I can use techniques like sous vide, which aren't new by the way, right? Sous vide was still for dinner that I grew up on as a kid. Like this was all, this was not some new development. This is a technique right. that had been around for a long time. It was just brought to the forefront and kind of used in a different capacity. But I think when you look at people like Ferran Adria or or uh, Heston Blumenthal, these guys that were really pioneering, these guys are the artists because everybody uses these techniques now or a portion of it. And that changed the way everybody cooked in the last two decades. You know, did it have legs? Is it entirely still part of what we knew? No, but facets of it will never go away. And to me, those are the artists, right? The rest of us are just craftsmen. Um, we're creating um, food. Food is our material instead of lumber or whatever it might be, paint. Um, and so I think, you know, we have to be really cognizant of the fact that it's a very workmanlike job, you know. Um, and that's not to get anything from craftsmen because I love craft. I, mean, I love the craft of my car. We were talking about the car earlier. Yeah. I love the craft of my vehicle. I love the craft of the woodwork in this room or something like that. You know, nobody would build this today. And I don't even know if they that did build it, that, that, right. the, that the craftsmen have the skill. Most of the stuff would all be machine work today, you know, instead of handwork. Um, and, you know, and I fear for the day in that sense, I fear for the day that automation which already has finds its way more into the food world, right? Because I feel like then we begin to just dumb down what we do. And, and I fear that. Um, but I also know that it's inevitable. Um, but what I like is, is I think when I look at craft from a dexterity perspective, right? Like working with your hands. Um, I don't know that machines can ever do that. You know, so at some degree, at some degree, we'll never entirely automate our industry. You know, maybe in a hospital or in an institution setting, yes. But like for what we do, people always eat. You'll always be at a street vendor in in Southeast Asia, and they'll be cooking in the street and do the thing. That'll never. That's never going to go away. You know. And mm -hmm. I jokingly tell kids, you know, when they practice cooking, that it's a craft. I'm like, understand that when you know how to cook, when you when you give yourself this craft and you develop skill, you can go anywhere in the world and share that skill. You know, I mean, I've cooked all over the world. I've been really fortunate and. And people, if you cook delicious food and you put some love into your craft, people appreciate it wherever you are, you know, to your point. And, it all, and it's all relevant to who we are and what we do. And, it's, and again, I go back to it's redundant, but it's the language that everybody speaks. You know, even when you can't verbally communicate with one another, you communicate with food or music like I talked about, you know. And I think those two to me are, are the consummate crafts that we can all share. I yeah. can't woodwork for shit. I, <laughs> I am serious. My dad's a great carpenter. I'm not. Yeah, there, there's a lot of things that I want to touch on there. I, I, I would like to think that. So, yeah, we're in the Lexington right now. It's just such a beautiful space. And the woodwork here is just astonishing. And I, I, I would like to think that a machine could never make uh, – things like this that we are seeing around us because there is something I would like to think personally that a human imparts on their thing when they create it or on their craft. There is some sort of human soul almost that gets uh, transferred onto the thing. And there is something very uh, warm and inviting and almost kind of mysterious <laughs> about the woodwork in this building. And I would, I would, again, I'd like to think that a machine can't do that. A machine can't convey that. Right. And another thing a machine can't really do, a machine can't really, it, it doesn't really have conviction. It just does things. It doesn't have that. No, again, it's, that human it's strictly data input, right? It's, like you're, right? it's whatever you teach it to do right. is all it does. And to your point of craft, I think it's really interesting is, you know, when you look at tradesmen over centuries, 
all of them had a unique mark, right? I mean, it, to the point that an artist signed a, a painting is the same way a guy making cabinets might have a certain buttress in his drawer or might have a thing that is indicative signature of what he does. And I think that right. that's really true going back to food. It's really true of chefs too, as I, you know, we, we often call them, and at least in my kitchens, I always call them crutches and we all have them. You have them. I have, we, have, we have the five or six tried and true things that we always do or some simile of those things. And they're just your go-to dishes. They're your go-to move. And I jokingly call them crutches, like think outside the box, you know, don't always fall back in the things you know are tried and true. But we all do that inherently, I think. And to your point, you know, a true craftsman, true artist, what machines can't do is they're never going to leave those marks and those symbols on things. You know, like you might go, um, you know, you might go to a particular place that you like and, and, you know, the chef always makes this amazing saffron aioli. I'm just using it, you know, but he puts uh, lemon juice and cayenne pepper because that's his move. And you recognize that move because nobody else does it, right? So you know that there's a specific mark that they put on things. And to your point, machines will never develop. Well, maybe they will develop that intelligence with AI. I don't know, but you, you hope not, right? Like you hope, that, <laughs> you, hope you hope that these nuances and these things that people bring to their craft of, and what they share with people are unique to them, right? And and that's I think that's what makes dining so amazing is that you know you're getting an expression of what somebody believes. You're getting expression of of their love of the craft and what they do. And whether that's like I said, buying these really awesome chairs, you know, replica chairs. Like again, nobody's making these chairs today. You know, nobody makes spring chairs, you know? And I just hope that we always pay reverence to the value of that craft, you know, because I think it it's part of our humanity, right? It's like performance art. It's like all these things to me that are just so, so important in what we do um, to just create a better collective community, to create a place where all people can share that humanity, you know, and that's really important to me. Yeah, the beauty and the human nature of craft is just, it's, we keep touching on it. I just hope it's something we never lose. Again, as we're in here, you know, I kind of get a little uh, emotional looking at this space because it's like, will we never see something like this again? Like, is this truly a relic of the past? Will humanity never be able to create something like this again? There's, I mean, there's something about this space. Of course, that captures the era in which it was built. Yeah. That's one thing. But will we ever be able to make beautiful spaces like this to this extent anymore i don't know maybe i'm getting to, to uh... no i think the sentiment's good because you were talking to sarah earlier sarah one of our, our managers here at McWhorter, who actually she was our project coordinator in the last few months as we you know as i transferred more to the kitchen and doing those things she helped me manage the construction because i did manage the construction for about 14 months here um there's a nostalgic value like you're talking about. There's a there's a reverence that people give this place as much for what it is, to your point, and, and how it looks and reps sometimes, but more the memories that one or two or three generations have shared here. And I feel like part of it just gets absorbed into what you're feeling, right? Like those spirits, those memories, those feelings live in these walls, you know? And when people come here, there is this nostalgic value that they bring going, gosh, I remember when my grandma took me here after church for brunch, you know, and I was eight years old and now I'm 58 and I'm bringing my kids here just like my grandma did. And I think that those things are important. Um, and I'm glad that we can resurrect something that really, you know, we jokingly call it the Grand Dame of St. Paul, but think of all the handshake deals that were done here over the years or all those family moments or all the birthday parties. I mean, I remember coming to a couple of weddings here in the last 20 years in the back Williamsburg room. And I just think of all the people that their memories are associated to something like this. And 
and over time everything changes and it's cyclical but i'm glad that we can keep it alive and, and people can still share that well uh, that's another interesting point that you bring up because i've always believed in it if it's you know a space like this having all of the moments that have happened here all those really special moments that that stuff's like never leaves in a way there's something about those moments that kind of stay in a space that kind of gives it a special feeling in my eyes you know there's something you know there's it's it's different than just the indoor space of a mcdonald's where it's just pure corporate profit but when you're in here at least for me personally you can kind of feel that it's special you can feel that a lot of special things have happened here and there are some of these institutions still that exist but to your point yeah i mean we deliberately build things hard today you know we don't want you to sit around we don't want and, and things are moving at such a fast pace like the idea of this is really kind of antiquated which is part of the reason you wouldn't see it anymore not to mention just the craftsmanship but you i know, hate that it's antiquated though me too which is, <laughs> which is exactly the reason that i felt it was important that we revive something like this you know um, and, you know, back to like cancer diagnosis, this is likely my legacy piece now. And, and so, you know, I want people to remember the moment that we did this and brought it back for people so that those memories live on. Because really what you can hope for, I think, in your afterlife and how you choose to believe in afterlife and spirituality is that I think, um, and I have a dear friend who's a rabbi who, who we talked about this um, a little bit a few months ago, is, you know, the afterlife is more about the spirit that you leave others. Not so much that your spirit lives on, but the, their remembrance of the things that you provide are how your spirit lives. You know, and I think about things like oral history and storytelling, like maybe that's my calling now as I have to tell the stories of all the things that I know so, so that these can be remembered. And that's then in turn how you can be remembered um, after the fact. And I, and I'm, and I'm, again, I go back to being grateful as, you know, I think about Alex Roberts and Stephen Brown and, and, and Isaac Becker and Tim McKee and like these guys from my era, you know, it was a different era of cooking. It was a different era of, of um, restaurant, uh, restaurants. It was a different era of, um, I think, dining. Um, but those stories, those guys are all relevant to how we got to where we are today. Um, and I'm glad to be a part of all those stories. You know, I mean, again, it's it's like a life, it's a, it's a work and a life well spent for me. Um, and I appreciate it. And it's fun that I can tell the stories. And I'm sure they can tell stories about how obnoxious I was or how loud I was. Or, you know, I, I How much knows? of a jackass I, you were. Yeah, well, I hope that they all can do a shot of whiskey in my name and talk shit. And, and, and you know, and, and I mean, it. it's awesome. Because for good or for bad, uh, what what did one of my chefs tell us? It doesn't. All press is good press as long as they spell your name right, right? Like <laughs> you know. And and I often tell people, you know, the difference between notoriety and fame. I'm way more I'm way more notorious than I am famous, you know. <laughs> and I appreciate that because it's a reflection of who you are. And and you don't. I think if you're honest, and you have the conviction, like we talked about, you know, then what else can you ask for, right? I mean, how you how people choose to remember you, you don't have control over. You know, right. you hope it's for the good. Right. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. And I also think touching back on what you said a few minutes ago, um, it really is kind of a a duty that that I think humans should take on to preserve spaces like this uh, because they do emanate something so special uh, and they and they represent a time where things were a little bit slower and people were willing to sit down for an hour or two with their family without getting upset about it. And uh 
you know, I, I think it's important to hold on to spaces like this as we enter into an era. Like sometimes, sometimes I get too focused on, on future thinking because for what I do for a living, I'm supposed to be thinking about the future a lot. So sometimes my mind goes decades down the line and, and you know, truthfully, I, I get excited, but I also get kind of scared because I'm, I'm, sometimes I get actually worried literally about what humanity is going to mean and 50 60 years yeah i think you should, <laughs> i think you should be scared. my wife's much younger than me and i know it it troubles her every day you know she sees what's going on in the world and she's such a nature guru you know and she's a gardener and she's a beekeeper and you know she she sees the effects that we have and has worry like you she you know she's a decade younger than me so generationally we're a little different that way um but i'm hopeful for people like you that are forward thinking and and believe in the future but also can bring the past along with it because i i think of it as like a giant rubber band right you stretch it to the extremes either way and it's going to snap back one way or the other whether it's you know to all one extreme on one side or all extreme on the other but eventually it all comes back to center and everything that's come within that stretching is relevant to where it arrives at right and so you can't have a future without having the past um i'm reading a cool book right now and one of the one of the things that they talked about in there is that the reason your rearview mirror is small and your windshield is big is that you can always see what's behind you, but it's not as important as what lies. Right. It's a, it's a very important reference. You know. But you and, can't be staring in the fucking rear view the whole time. When you're driving <laughs> forward or, or, right, right, or you're right. never going to get where you're going. You're going to crash yeah. and burn. And yeah. so you have to, you know. And so I, yeah, I thought it was an interesting metaphor. And, and I think what's interesting, I think you're obviously younger than I am. I think the future is brighter and greater than ever, you know, but I think. I think that we have to um, slow down to a degree, like you said. I was at a restaurant the other night. I haven't gone into many restaurants in the last two years, but I went and visited some friends, and we don't need to talk about where I was, but it was a younger, kind of hipper restaurant. I think it's funny that you say, you know, all corporate profit, but it was, you know, it was very modern restaurant, and everybody in there was on their phone, and I was going nuts, man. Like, I watched a group of six women come in and sit down together, and literally the entire hour I was there, every one of them was on their phone but talking to each other at the same time and and i just i don't know i'm as much as i'm wed to my phone particularly these days i also enjoy the times where i don't have to have it at all right i want that like when i walk my dog i don't bring my phone you know what i mean because i look at it and say this is the moment i'm walking with my dog and my wife and, and i want I want that moment to be about that experience and not about an interrupted phone because I can always answer the phone, right? I think the biggest challenge I see in, in kind of your fear is that we're just never disconnected now, right? Like how do you find your downtime? Because if it's not work, I mean, we can all revel in the idea that uh, email, you know, it's going to make things so much more efficient. And in many degrees it has, and it's pioneered. I mean, the World Wide Web has changed the way the world is. Um, but at the same time, it's required that we're plugged in 24-7, right? Like, you're expected to answer your texts right away. You're expected to answer your emails. You're expected, I mean, I, I look at the amount of mail I get. I mean, I have, I have three emails. I have snail mail at the Lex. I have snail mail at my house. I mean, I have five ways to get mail. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, I mean, it's a lot, right? And so when you're trying to find that moment, you know, like you're talking about, can we slow down? Can we appreciate? It's like, we're inundated with information now. It's just, it's moving so fast. It's, it's kind of insane. Right, and uh, and it happens really gradually too. But what I see to be happening, especially over the last twenty years, is that uh, technology is starting to in, invade our, uh, our our personal or physical proximity. So you know, back 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 in the day, you know, we had the typewriter. Okay, that's great. And then you know, 
<clears throat> far after that, Steve Jobs came along. He made the Macintosh. Okay, that's great. <clears throat> but then we started creating things like, uh, you know, earbuds and then AirPods and then smartwatches. Like things are increasingly becoming attached to us. Oh, wait till the glasses to, to, are coming, dude. Oh, man, I mean, to the point where to the point where we're going to have glasses and like fucking notifications will pop up on your glasses yeah. and then after that, who knows, a microchip in your a microchip in your brain that'll just broadcast signals to your brain about your social media notifications or something or maybe social media will be it'll be different at that point, but it's just uh, I, and what I'm, what I'm getting at here though, and uh, also your phone is like another appendage. It's like a third arm. Yes. Cause like you're, you know, it's, it's the, the, <laughs> there's the classic, there's the classic with my phone, right? It's yeah. like you're missing an arm in that moment. So yeah, I guess what I'm getting at is, uh, we're, be, we're almost becoming, um, I don't know, like cyborg esque type people where oh, we like, scary. we, we need that. Uh, we need like me personally, I'm a total victim of this. I have my AirPods in a lot. I'm always, cause I'm a big music guy too. I'm always listening to music. Always have to have my phone on me. It feels weird when it's not on me. And it's just this natural thing where tech is starting to kind of latch onto our bodies almost. And it's really weird, but yeah, I, I think you're <laughs> absolutely right. And it, it and the, the other part that's difficult for me in that equation is it's necessary. So it's not just becoming latching onto your body and that it's an, another appendage, but it's required appendage now too, right? Yeah, like, right, I mean, exactly. How do you function if you don't have access to the internet or a smartphone? I mean, then to think that the smartphone is only, what, 15 years old? That's mind-blowing. That's crazy. You know what I mean, how old is the iPhone? I'm probably 15 years, right? But yeah. I, I just think about how, how it's all changed. And now I think, it, you know, interesting, because now I'll go off, I'll digress for a minute, but... I'm thinking about like you talk about glasses and the watch and how we're kind of forwarding the technology. That was pretty soon your phone is just going to be a device that you carry that is kind of um, the modern computer. It'll process and do everything, but it's going to come to you via the chip in your brain, like you said, or the glasses. And, and you'll, you'll carry the phone just as a way to receive the information, but you won't ever look at your phone anymore. You're going to look at your watch or you're going to get, you know, you're going to get the display on your glasses and you're going to have face recognition. So you're going to see somebody and their name's going to pop up so that you remember. Just yeah. kind of And I don't think that that's scary by any means, you know, going back to talking about automating things in AI, I just think it's a natural progression, but I think there's things within that progression that will never change. And I don't think that you can ever eliminate the entire human element. I mean, look at the, the, the resonance if you're a music fan. Analog music is coming back for the reason that people think the sound is different, right? Yeah, I mean, I have a record player. I like the sound. I've, I've Dude, I this is maybe a little bit too hipster, but I was listening to cassettes the other day because I just like, you know, I like the hiss of the cassette and especially with certain genres, like I'm really in ambient music. Okay. It adds on an, an entirely new character to the music. Like, yeah, I get that. And I think people more and more. So, back, you know, back to kind of where, where you went when you were going this direction is, is I think that, what was I going to say? I think that there's always going to be those intangibles, right? Like, I don't think that you can recreate the sound of the cassette hiss or the needle hissing when you're waiting for the album to play. Like, those things can't be recreated, right? And I think for the generation, you call it maybe too hipster, I think for a lot of what I see now, my wife is really good. Like we're the reuse family. If I could show you a picture like my salt racker or, or my spice drawer, like everything is a reclaimed jar. Yeah. Everything is reclaimed. She's anti-plastic. So, you know, like the whole takeout 
thing and the packaging that we've had to deal with has just been a stress for my wife. Like she can't, it, her mind doesn't work that way because she can't throw away a single glass bottle, a single glass jar. I mean, I have, you know, I have Coke bottles with a cork in it that has vinegar, you know, and she, <laughs> and she buys bulk at the co-op, which I really appreciate because I'm, I was never that way until I met her. Yeah, but I think yeah. there's an idea that kind of these bespoke things are becoming more important and more relevant as we, as we push one direction of more technology and more being plugged in. There's also the other side of the equation where people are looking at, hey, can I hand forge knives in my garage? Can I do cool craft work that is the antithesis of, of this kind of tech boom and movement, right? And I think more and more people are looking for that curated um, experience or that moment that something is more bespoke and craft made. And, and, and I think that I think it's it's a natural against that rubber band. It's the natural retort, retort to too much on one side requires an equal pull on the other side. And I, I'm hopeful that we're gonna get more of that, right? Like I think, you know, as we see more and more of the corporate restaurants, and it's interesting because I, I think the pandemic in some respects is gonna accelerate some things, but it's also gonna decelerate other things. It's also gonna be people looking at, you know, like, what do you, what do you see? I'd ask you this, like, what do you see happening post pandemic? I think there's going to be a fatigue for the takeout counter service, the QV code. I think part of that's never going to go away because it's going to change the way. Like, I don't think the plexiglass is ever going down at the grocery store. I think people will continue to wear masks on airplanes, even though their airplanes are one of the safest places you can be. People's mindset is I'm sitting next in close proximity. and. Oh yeah. We're traumatized by coronavirus. Do you know yeah, what I mean? We're going to have the after effects of stuff for right, years. But now. I think there's also going to be the moment where people are, is it the roaring twenties again? I guess is my point. Are people going to say, you know, I don't want to go to a counter. I actually want service or I don't want to go and order online because I enjoy going to the local hardware store. And even though I pay a little bit more money at Bob's Ace Hardware, um, the experience of seeing that person being in my neighborhood, kind of that whole affirmation to things being more close to home and more dear, um, become important and relevant. You know, like we get less of that almighty corporate dollar. And I see the generation of kids coming up with the amount of information that they're given with social media and the and the context in which they can receive all this information. Things are going to become more transparent, and things are going to be harder um, to dodge. You know, I think in my generation. You know, we all got our news from five sources and we all kind of just that was the narrative. And today, you know, it's all real time for people. And, and the generation of my niece and nephew, you know, they're challenging social norms and they have more information than we ever. I had we had encyclopedias and pen pals. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and today, you know, my my niece was in India for a year. We were FaceTime. I could FaceTime her in a car driving down 94 and she's on a rooftop in India and, and I'm here and it just that type of technology blows me away. And, it, and that as much as we can loathe it or fear it or not, you know, not want it to go there. It's also amazing, right? Like I look at somebody like Elon Musk and this is just my own opinion, obviously, you know, I don't think he cares about being rich. I think he wants to change the world. dude. He wants to have rocket ships that can land on the moon. He wants to create battery life. That's going to change the way we power our house and power our cars. And, you know, this isn't, I don't think it's about him saying, I want to be the richest man in the world. I think he's industrialist. I think he's a modern industrialist. And I think we need, we need that as much as we need the other, because that's what keeps it all in that context, right? That's what makes us appreciate more of the handmade shovel. And, I, right. and I'm hopeful that the young kids today want to accumulate less things, but they want the things that they have to be of greater 
value, resonance, and 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 uh, um, I forgot what I was going to say. Sorry, but it it I don't know. I think it's really fascinating. Like my niece, who's you know she my niece, you know, my brother does very well. He's he's a wealthy guy, and she could have anything she wants, and she refuses. She's all of her clothing she buys at the thrift store because she doesn't like the idea of after going to India and living in India for years, she's like the whole textile thing kind of bugged her, right? Like she saw these mass manufacturing plants in India, hand stitching stuff. She's like, and, and we throw so much of it away. She's like, I want to just go buy all you stuff. And that's really important to her. And she's 17 years old. I'm like, that's really cool, you know? And she wants to take the city bus instead of have a driver's license. And, you know, I, I think with somebody who has all the privilege in the world, she could probably have a car if she wanted. And it's just not where her value system is. And I'm, I'm hopeful for more of that. Like I think, I think that there's an idea that that pushing back is, is going to be um, is going to be relevant. And and again, going back to like designing, are people going to be tired of the QV code? Like I've enjoyed it sitting on a patio. You know, my wife likes some um, sour beers, so we search sour beers. And most breweries now, it's all the you know the QVC code, and you just sit there and you get sales service. Like I think that's great, but I do think people are going to want. I I'm hopeful people are going to want this experience um, coming out of the pandemic. Right. Uh, I, we can we can finish up pretty soon here, but I think it's interesting that you mentioned Elon Musk because I'm a fan of him too. And he, a big thing that he is always saying is that his primary overall mission that drives everything he does is he's he's mainly looking to, and it's really beautiful. He he wants to main, he wants to preserve the light of human consciousness because he says, as far as we know, consciousness is an extremely rare and also a misunderstood phenomenon. So he's like, I'm gonna do whatever I can to preserve that. So that's why he's all about human advancement. That's why he's all about progress because he's like, we, I don't think we realize how much of a potential outlier we are, Yeah. you know? And he's like, that's why he's about the moon. He's about Mars. He's about, you know, colonizing Mars. He's about like Neuralink. He's about SpaceX. He wants to, he wants us to become literally like an interplanetary species because we have the we are have this gift, this mysterious, mysterious gift called consciousness. And he's just like, we have to preserve this. We have to do something with this. This is yeah, incredible. That's fascinating. Yeah. And you know, and there's gonna be people that fear it, but I look at it and say, is Dune a reality, right? I mean, Dune the book was one of my favorites as a kid. If we want to mine lithium and we want to move forward and be electrifying, we can't do it on our planet. Right. And he's saying, I'm gonna land a ship on an asteroid. And we're going to mine asteroids and we're going to take the minerals from there, which A, are going to be easier to produce in, in zero gravity. And he's going to bring it back to Earth to use. And I, I don't know, to your point of consciousness, he's looking forward and forward thinking in those ways as how, how do we create a, a greater planet. And I think it's awesome. I'm glad that you appreciate it because I think some people fear it, but I think, I think you have to have it. I mean, without, without pioneers like him, I mean, compare him to Henry Ford if you want to, right? A guy who's going to revolutionize the world by the automobile. Everybody thought he was crazy and he went bankrupt a bunch of times. But look at what he did to change and revolutionize. I mean, he was the beginning of the original Industrial Revolution. And now we're looking at SpaceX and it's like we're watching a guy do the same thing, you know? And I think it's interesting that they talk about consciousness in that. That's really fascinating. Because, you know, back to the cancer thing, it's... It created it created a different consciousness for me. It just created a way for me to view things differently, as opposed to being dire. How do we create a greater? How do I create a greater consciousness within myself to feel grateful for the moments that I have left? You know, and I just think that that's really important. You're a pretty smart guy. I, I you I, read a lot, don't you? 
I do read a lot. Right. I, I, I imagine though that, and back to this, and I don't mean to prod it too much, but I just, I, I imagine a, a cancer diagnosis just makes a lot of things matter more, but it makes a hell of a lot th- of things matter way less. I feel there's just like a, I feel like there'd just be a giant cutting away of, wow, that does not matter as much as I thought it did. You know, it's interesting that you say that too, because there's kind of a couple things that have been going on is I live in a duplex. So I've always rented my other space and we lost our tenant. He bought a house right before COVID. So now we've lived in the house just by ourselves. We didn't rent out the unit during COVID. And I decided that we should redo the floors in our unit because really our unit's never, ever been worked on. I'm kind of, I'm a huge project guy. Like I, I love landscaping. I love working on my house. Um, I love being busy. Um, but we moved downstairs and we didn't move entirely because we're only doing three floors of five rooms. So everything's packed into two rooms and the three are getting refinished right now. But it's amazing to your point. When we moved downstairs, we realized all the stuff that I don't need. Like we're li- cause I kind of living on three floors, right? Like half the stuff is put away upstairs and in, in the front porch, the other half we're living with on the main level. And then the rest of the stuff got put in boxes in the basement. And now it's been, you know, three months, four months, whatever. And you realize I don't need any of that stuff. Like, it's just amazing how soon you realize what you can strip away and isn't really relevant. And as, you know, as much as cancer does that to your point, yes. But also just forcing yourself into a situation where the unit downstairs is smaller. We don't have all of our furniture. Um, you know, I cut, I cut the cord on cable TV. I bought an antenna, so all I have is network television. You know what I mean? But everybody streams, right? I mean, so I don't, you know, I mean, we stream anything that we really want to watch. And it's just, it's amazing how fast you realize what you really don't need. You know, as much as I love my car, it's frivolous, right? But it's like the one, it's my one joy. I live in a cheap house so I can have a nice car. That's what I tell people. Dude, uh, you and I, yeah, that's uh, that's really aspirational for me. When I saw that, I was like, I fucking hope that's Jack's car. That is such a cool Audi. Thank you. And for, uh, we were talking about it earlier. God damn, 400 horsepower on that guy. That's crazy. Dude, it's fi- it's like 5,000 pounds. Like it should, you know, I mean, I worry that it weighs so much as fast as... Is it a hatchback, technically? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a Q5. It's an SQ5. But it's a, it looks like a wagon because I have it slammed down. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's crazy to me because even it. with six-piston brakes, dude, the thing doesn't stop fast. It weighs a lot. Oh, you know? my so gosh. It's... Uh, I wish I didn't enjoy automobiles as much as I do, but I, I don't know when my car bug hit me. It wasn't until I was probably in my 30s or 40s. And I really? Could actually, I could actually afford a car. I, uh, I can feel it creeping on. I can feel it creeping on. I mean, I... I have like a, 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 a poor man's sports sedan, you know, just a 2007 Acura TL, but it has like hey, just, an, TL is awesome, it just has just enough horsepower to like satisfy me. And now I'm already thinking, oh man, well, it also next? has to be a daily driver. Like I love my wife's car. I told you it's, it's tuned to, uh, it's yeah, she has a fucking race track, car, right? But it's so loud, dude. And, and even like, you know, she's uh she's a wine wholesaler. Like they hear her coming before they see her <laughs> and, and you know, she's beginning to realize, yeah, maybe it's not the best road ever, but you know, because her and I worked downtown forever. Um, until 2015, I'd worked in Minneapolis downtown for, I guess, five, 11, probably a dozen years. I rode a bike. I mean, I was riding my bike year round. I didn't need a car. So then when it came time that I could actually buy a car and now I'm, you know, 40 plus years old, I'm like, I want a nice car. Because <laughs> <Like, laughs> yeah. I was, I mean, my first new car, I was 35 years old. I bought a uh, Subaru WRX wagon. I was working at Lava in Stillwater. I knew I had to have reliable transportation because I was taking over the chef position there. So I bought my first new car and that's what I bought. And it was, you know, the working man sports car. It was a 2003 WRX wagon. I slammed that down too and put sway bars on it. And oh my God. It was so fun to drive. I love that car. And then, uh, 
shout out to one of my sous chefs at the time, his name, and I was total lit on a dinner we were doing in Duluth. Drove it off the road to crash. <laughs> it, was, it was so funny. It was funny about the story. Sorry, we're telling the story. If you hear this, sorry, Joe. Um, I had to take two cars. So I took my wife's car and mine. And I thought, well, if anything happens, it can't happen to my wife's car. So I'm driving the Golf, you know, TDI, not fancy. And thank God they didn't crash that or it me, but they, then they crashed my car. And had I not actually jinxed myself and said, I better let them drive my car because if something happened to my wife's car while she was out of town, yikes the death of me hey this is really fun I yeah man let's, let's no let's wrap it up there this has been great you are such a multifaceted human i wasn't expecting that truth be told i did know about you before this but i didn't know you were uh you're you're quite an you're quite an onion i mean there's just there's a lot there that i wasn't expecting and i really appreciate all your insights and uh it's it's been great and it's such an honor and a privilege to be in this space i've known about it of course for years and i've just never been in here kind of outside of my tax bracket but someday it'll change yeah that's okay but, just come in and have an old-fashioned at the bar you know? yeah yeah that sounds that sounds wonderful i don't but, know if you're a whiskey drinker but yeah yeah yeah. I, I you know i alternate gin whiskey kind of depends on the year and what i'm into that's totally me. like i can't drink anymore but gin and whiskey were for sure my poisons you know yeah I mean? yeah right now I'm, I'm big on uh cabernet sauvignons Ooh, nice i'm a big fan of those um I just really like pairing wine and cheese, and I really liked aged cheddar. So cabs match up with aged cheddar a, pretty well. Do you have a favorite aged cheddar right now? No, it's just I just I like to stay in like the, <laughs> you know, eight years is pr is a pretty good is a pretty Dude, good. That's an old cheese. Yeah, that's that's what I'm into. One of my favorites um, forever and ever is a Cabot cloth bound cheddar. I think it's a four year. Okay, it's really good. But have you tried the Prairie Grease organic from no. Iowa? And it's relatively inexpensive. Cheese, dude. Okay, let's talk about cheese for a minute. I'm, cheese. A, I'm a Wisconsin native, by the way. Like, oh, are you really? Yeah, Milwaukee Bucks, man. So, like, cheese is in my DNA. Well, it should be. And and there's wonderful cheese from There's wonderful cheese from this whole region, people don't realize. And I've been a cheese guy for, I remember, in 1996, my chef came to me, and I was a sous chef at Goodfellow at the time. He's like, I want to do an all-domestic cheese. Because at that time, we still had amazing French cheese, and you could do all this kind of stuff. He's like, I want to do an amazing, hey, Craig, I want to do an amazing domestic cheese plate. And at that time, there was probably doing artisan cheese in America. I mean, as I did my research, like maybe a dozen people. And this is only 30 years ago. And today, I mean, that's tenfold. There's 300 awesome artisan cheesemakers. But I just remember how hard it was being tasked to do that, because really, I could only buy cheese from like five places. Um, but then I just got this affinity for cheese and loved it. I call it adult candy. And today it's, man, it's, it's so expensive. It's a treat, dude. Like even me who loves it, like Keith Adams, who owns Alomar is, is a good, is a dear friend of mine. I love him. And I remember when he was like just at the farmer's market in Minneapolis and then started to produce what I think is one of the country's greatest Camden bears along with, if he had his cheese curds yet from the food building. Uh, have I? I don't think so. Actually, hey, go get Alomar cheese curds at the, uh, at the, oh, uh, wait a sec. Have Kieran I? Food is it the, what's it called? The food kitchen, food building by Kieran? Kieran, no, I totally have had those cheese curds. Dude, yeah, made I with had, Jersey milk. when I was doing my radio show on Jazz 88, I had Kieran on and he brought that in along with like Red Table Meats. He like brought in yeah. the whole suite. I have had those cheese curds and yes, they are amazing. I mean, they're the only ones in Minnesota that are squeaky. And if you're from Wisconsin, you know I'm talking about. So you buy them, you open the bag, you leave them on the counter overnight. Yes, people, you can leave cheese out overnight. Um, <laughs> and then you get them and they're, they're fucking squeaky. And like, there's the thing about the squeaky cheese curd. It's not even about the quality of cheese at the point. It's the texture that's really important. And, and it, it's such a Wisconsin thing. That's yeah. what I say it to you. Like, cause I have a friend from Wisconsin, he's a chef. Every time he comes to town, um, he lives in Hawaii now. He visits his family. He brings me like a two pound thing of cheese curds. And <laughs> my wife and I are always like, 
what are we going to do with two pounds of cheese grits? And literally within like 48 hours, they're gone. Right. That's what you do. You eat them. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool that you love cheese. I don't think, I don't think there's a lot of youngsters that appreciate like the value of how good the cheese is in our country and here right now too. Anyway, try the Iowa Breeze organic cheddar. It's affordable and I think you'll like it. Yeah, one of my favorites. And this is the last thing I'll say about cheese because this is a warm home. We need to wrap up. But O'Galley Cheese Factory in Wisconsin, they have this just this amazing Parmigiano Reggiano that I just really? that blows me away. Have you ever heard of O'Galley? No, but I'm gonna check it I'll, out. I'll, yeah, I'll if you don't if you don't remember I'll send you the link. But this place has like life changing Parmigiano Reggiano just I don't know what they do to it. I think they put crack in it or something. They, there's hey. there's something illicit in there, I think. <laughs> All the good cheesemakers have secrets, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, awesome. This was really fun. Yeah, Thank man, you. let's cap it there. This has been and, such and a And I'll ramble on all day. I love to talk. Maybe, you know, Jason DeRussia politely said to me, maybe your goal now is you just tell the story, you know, and maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah, and that was a really wonderful story, man. Thank you so much for coming say. on. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for sticking around. I'm going to include a link to Jack Reel's GoFundMe page in the description of this episode. It was started by local news anchor Jason DeRussia, and they've raised over 60 grand so far for Jack's cancer treatment. If you enjoyed our conversation, please consider donating. If you're not sold on the guy, well, go to the Lexington. Try the food. Take in the decor. It's one hell of a restaurant, and that place is standing proud today because of Jack. Even if you don't live in the Twin Cities, it's worth traveling for. Details on the Lexington itself will be in the description as well. As always, be sure to follow the podcast on the official Instagram page, which you can now find at Food Under Fire Pod. You can find it on Facebook as well under the same name. Remember that I now have a Patreon for the podcast. Patreon is a service where, for as little as $3 a month, you can get access to merch. It's optional, but if you're interested, visit patreon.com slash foodunderfire. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash foodunderfire. Find the link in the description as well. And of course, if you enjoy the show, consider subscribing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You could also share with a friend or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Take care.